beginning with verse, I probably said the wrong verse if you heard me. I don't pay attention. Verse, verse 44 is where we are. Chapter 13. Jesus is speaking again to his disciples and he says these words again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to them, Have you understood these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, we look at these final four parables of the Lord Jesus Christ as he spoke them privately to his disciples, knowing that, Lord, he spoke those things to them to train them, equip them, and provide for them all that they needed to convey the truths that you want conveyed to a dark world that they were going to face. They were going to go out into the world proclaiming these words of truth. And in these parables, you taught them some very important things that they needed to know. And also we, in this present day, need as well to know. So we ask that you would enlighten us, O oh God, by the power of your Holy Spirit as we study these words of Jesus together in this place today. Be glorified in it, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. The first parable, the hidden treasure. Actually, the two parables side by side talk about treasures of different kinds. The first parable in verse 44 says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then in verse 45 he gives the second parable, that is very much like that one that we just read, and it goes along these same lines. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So Jesus is telling his disciples that the kingdom of heaven here is like these things. As he had done in previous parables, if you were here last time and the time before, we looked at the fact that Jesus gave these several parables and only actually expounded on a couple of them. 
He didn't tell them the meaning of every parable that he spoke in this list of seven or eight parables, depending on who you listen to. I consider the last parable that I read as a true parable, referring to the scribes. But some people don't count that as a parable. It makes no difference whether you do or don't. We're going to count it as a parable here today. But these first two of those parables that he spoke to his disciples... He doesn't really tell them what these parables mean. Don't you wish that he had? I do. Because if he had, I wouldn't have to try. So I'm going to try. And the problem with trying is I count it as strictly opinion. I hope that you understand what I mean by that. Opinion is just what somebody like myself thinks about some certain topic and expresses what he thinks to others. That's an opinion. Doctrine, on the other hand, is certain because it's the Word of God exposed, the Word of God expounded, and the Word of God believed. I'm not telling you anything about doctrine here because I can't be dogmatic about these things. In fact, if you look through the multitude of commentaries that have been written on these parables, you will find some vast differences in understanding of what these parables mean. That's why we spent a great deal of time the last time when we looked at the other parables that Jesus spoke with regard to a theological term that I used several times and I hesitate to use it again because I don't want to be so repetitive, but it's worth knowing. There is such a thing as expositional constancy. And what we mean by that is when Jesus does indeed give us the meaning of a parable, and he has done that on two of these parables that he spoke, then it can be assumed, it should be assumed, that the same meaning can be applied and should be applied to the other parables that he doesn't explain. For instance, in the very first parable, the sowing of the seed, we know that Jesus, the man, is Jesus. It is Jesus sowing the seed. And the field is the world. Those are constants throughout the parables that are given here. And I say that because it's an important way of understanding these two parables that we're looking at so far this morning. Because there is a belief by many commentators that these two parables, the parables of the treasures, Speak of salvation. We, in their opinion, are the one who is finding the treasure. And that treasure is salvation. And they say that we give up everything to buy that field. To proclaim and procure that treasure for ourselves. Well, that sounds very nice. Until you begin to put together what the Bible says with regard to our salvation. The Bible clearly states that our salvation is something that we ourselves do not buy. It's a free gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, uh, verse 8 through 11, speak on those things. By grace you are saved, through faith. It is a gift of God. It's not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It's free. We don't pay for our salvation. It is given by a loving God. And that gift 
is received by us. And it's a wonderful thing to know that we can receive such a boundless mercy and grace that has been provided for each and every one of us. But you don't buy it. You couldn't afford it. Psalm 45 tells us very much the same thing. The psalmist asks, can a man redeem his brother? And the answer he gives is, no, it's too costly a price. You have no way of redeeming others, and you have no way of redeeming yourself. That's the project that only God can take upon himself. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we find the one who was very much capable of doing what is described here in this parable. For it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that it is Jesus who was rich, who became poor for our sake. In other words, he gave up all that he had to save you and me. So that's the picture that I believe Jesus is giving to us here. He is the man in this parable. In verse 44 then, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. So a man in this parable can be, I believe, likened to Jesus Christ. He came and he had a treasure that he wanted to keep for himself. Well, you might ask, well, what does it mean then when he says he hid the treasure in a field? The field has already been described by Jesus to us as the world. So there's a treasure hidden in a field, hidden in the world. And this one sells all that he has to, pro, uh, to allow, get himself that field and make that treasure his own. What is the treasure? You and me. We are the treasure. But even better than that, and perhaps I'll wait on this uh, particular thought because it's not really something we can be dogmatic about. But don't tell anybody. I'll make it a secret thing that you and I know and nobody else. Well, actually, other expositors have said it as well. So I'm not alone in thinking this. But I'll get that to that in a minute. I'm going to move on first to the second parable that he gives. It really, as I said, is very much like that first one we just looked at. There's a treasure involved. Look at it again, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now here, the merchant is likened to the kingdom of heaven. The merchant, again, is a man that is described as taking some action. And again, if we're to be constant, that man is Christ. And the field in which he finds the pearl, although it's not mentioned here, he finds a pearl of great price, perhaps not in the field described, but it's assumed that it's a world in which the pearl is found. He buys that pearl at great price. He sells, again, all that he had to obtain it. So in both of these parables, the one who is introduced to us as the actor in the parables is the one who gives up everything to procure that which he seeks to have. Now, what's the difference between the two parables? Well, the difference is, in one, the first one, he finds a treasure in the field, hides it, buys a field, and then purchases 
that field for himself. Well, scratch your head with me. Think about this. Jesus is the creator of the world, right? Say yes. Yes. Why would he have to buy that which he had created? Well, there is an answer to that, biblically speaking. So let me share that with you. All the way back in the book of Genesis, we find Adam and Eve in the garden. What did they do? They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did God do in response to their having eaten that tree? He cast them out of Eden. Why is that significant? Because when God created Adam and Eve, Adam was given the authority to rule over all of the world. It was his, given to him by God the Creator, to have dominion over. He basically gave that up when he sinned. When he was cast out of Eden, God had told him, when you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And he died spiritually. And having done that, the one who deceived Eve has usurped the authority that Adam had been given. And now he is the one who has possession of that which God had created for man. The Bible definitely speaks on these things with regard to Satan. He is the God of this world, the prince of the powers of the air. He is in control. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. Satan told Jesus, all you've got to do is bow down to me. You don't have to go to the cross. Bow down to me and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. What did he mean by that? He possessed them. It was his right to give it to whomever he chose. He offered it to Jesus, and of course you know that Jesus refused. Thankfully, he had another purpose, another plan that was very far better than that which Satan tried to convince him to take advantage of. And so Christ did not. And as a result, Satan is still the ruler of this world. Ultimately, Jesus will buy it back. He had to pay a price. And he paid that price on the cross. Praise be to God for that wonderful, wonderful moment of victory on the cross. He put Satan and all of his cohort to an open shame at the cross. There was victory at the cross. That's why when Jesus said, It is finished. It meant completely done. But we're in an age in which we do not yet see the actual fulfillment of that which he has accomplished. So, you have to go to the book of Revelation to learn, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. In Revelation chapter 4, John, by the Spirit, is called up into heaven. Come up here, the voice declared. And John goes by in the Spirit to this wonderful, glorious vision of heavenly things. And in that vision, John sees the one who is seated on, seated on the throne holding a scroll in his hand. And the offer is made, the request is made, whoever is worthy to unloose the scroll... 
come and do so. And nobody in heaven or on earth, anywhere, was able to open the scroll. And John began to weep over this. I believe John understood what that scroll was. That scroll was what we would refer to as a title deed to the earth. And it needed to be paid for. It needed to be bought back from the enemy of our souls. And then we find one, John says, who was like a lamb had come. A lamb that had been slain. It can be no other than Jesus. He sees that in this vision. And he takes that scroll and he opens that scroll. He has redeemed the earth by the power of his resurrection from the dead. In that day, that transaction will indeed take place. It hasn't yet. But I believe the Word of God is quite clear. It's going to. And I believe it will be soon. But in that transaction that is given to us in the book of Revelation, we see that the world then is given back to Him as His own possession. He had paid the price. And now He takes that which is His. And Satan will no longer have that which does not belong to Him. Praise the name of the Lord forever and ever. He is in control now. He still is wandering about this world, seeking whom He may devour. He is still going back and forth between here and heaven, and He's accusing the brethren. He's very good at doing that. He's active in the world today, but He's got limited time, and He knows it. He knows it. He's got but a little time left, and He's going to make use of that time. But... The victory is already assured. The transaction is already complete. In God's eyes, it is indeed finished. It is indeed done. What a wonderful Savior we have who's accomplished so much wonderfully for our benefit. Those of us who have received Christ as our Lord and Savior can rejoice in these wonderful things that have been written for our benefit. It tells us in verse 44, He found it and hid the treasure, and for joy over it, He goes and sells all He has. How could He be joyful if He knew that He was going to the cross to die? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us very plainly, yes, He endured the cross for the joy that he was looking forward to at the end that was sure to come. He expected joy even through suffering. He gave up everything with the expectation that it would pay the price for the joy that would be his, for the glory that would be his. And in John 17, Jesus, still on the earth with His disciples, praying that wonderful prayer to His Father, Father, restore to me that glory that I had with You from the beginning. Oh, He looked forward to that wonderful time when everything will be back to the way it should have been from the very beginning. Should have always been, but because of man's sin, it was not so. And yet, in spite of man's stupidity, that continues even to this day. He's still going to accomplish that which He has planned to accomplish for us because He loves us. You know, there are a lot of people who would say, well, if God loves us, 
why is everything happening in the world the way it is today or ever? Well, the answer that, to that is really quite complicated, but the truth of the matter is, in its simplest form, the reason that there is sin in the world is because man is sinful. We have a sinful nature. But he's going to correct that. And sin is in the world because man is, by nature, a sinful creature. We've inherited that sinfulness, that sinful nature from Adam, the first man. God's changed all of that. But yet there still is a need for a certain amount of things that have to take place before that can all be reconciled. And while it's being worked on in the heavenly places, here on earth, things are really messed up. But there is a remnant that will be saved. And there is a fullness of Gentiles that will come in to the kingdom. And that will be the completion of all that God has intended. And then when that takes place, people, we're out of here. So these two parables, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of a precious pearl, very similar, have the same basic focus. But why two? What is the meaning or the need for two parables that say basically the same thing? Well, this is what I wanted to suggest to you earlier on that I will suggest to you here now. The first parable, the treasure hidden in the field. Again, the field is a world. So what's the treasure? In Exodus, chapter 19, verse 3, God says to Moses, The children of Jacob are my precious treasure. In Psalm 135, verse 4, the psalmist writes the words of God as he speaks through the psalmist by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are my treasure. So I submit to you that the treasure here in this parable likely is the nation of Israel. Now keep in mind, the church hasn't really been hid by the Lord. It's been in the world, hasn't it? It's been working in the world, trying its best to do God's will within the context of this world environment in which we find ourselves. The church is still active. The church is still very much alive. We're not as victorious as we ought to be, perhaps, but we're still at the church. And we're still being used by the Lord because he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. So this treasure... I submit to you, is perhaps a reference to the nation of Israel. Hid. Well, you know that since the resurrection, the nation of the Jews still have existed, but they didn't have the land. In 70 AD, that all changed. They were a nation without property, but they were still a nation. They still maintained their heritage, their language, their uniqueness. But they were hidden from view as far as the world is concerned. They were gone. They weren't a people anymore. They were hid, as it were. 
That all changed in 1948, did it not? They became a nation once again. And they retained their language. They retained their heritage. There's no other nation on the earth who has ever, ever accomplished such things. And if you were to read Ezekiel chapters 35, 36, and 37, you would see the making of the nation of Israel in the last days exactly as it is coming about in this present hour. The nation of Israel is the treasure hidden in the field. It's a very good way of looking at this. You can't, again, be dogmatic about it, but I suggest to you that it's a real, really good way of looking at this. Why? Because a pearl also recommends or, or resembles something in the church today. The pearl is a unique, precious stone. All of the other gems, diamonds, rubies, the various other stones that are used by mankind and considered to be precious, those are all found usually by digging for them or going into a stream and, and painting for the gold, for instance. They're not like the pearl. The pearl is definitely unique in that a pearl is existing because of an organiz organism, an oyster. The pearl is the only gem of its kind. Not every oyster has a pearl. But they actually grow pearls and it works quite effectively. They take an oyster, live of course, they open the shell and they slit its mantle, kind of like your throat. And they stick into that mantle an imperfection, perhaps a small stone or fleck of sand or something that would cause an irritant for the oyster. They put the oyster back into the water and over time that oyster responds to that imperfection that's lodged in its mantle and it secretes material that coats that imperfection to remove that level of pain that it is feeling. And over time, that continues to grow into what we know of as a pearl. That's fascinating. With regard to the Jews, shellfish are not something the Jews are interested in. In fact, they're considered to be unclean. Jews had nothing to do with pearls, ever. You'll not find any reference except perhaps in the book of Job with regard to a pearl as being of any value to a Jew. Why is that significant? Well, the oyster comes from the sea. The sea is a type or picture of the world the Gentile nations. So if you put all of that together, perhaps what Jesus is saying in these two parables paired together, that he's taking to himself a treasure, which are the Jews, and a pearl of great price, which are the Gentiles. And he's making into that combination of those two precious treasures 
one church. I like that idea. I think it fits very well. You can have your own opinions about whether it is being said or not, but I believe that that is very, very much what Jesus had in mind. The pearl of great price are the Gentiles who would come in. So then what about the dragnet? In verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea, the world, and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So a dragnet is a large net that they would cast into the sea, and they would hold on to the two ends so that the net would be in the water, and as their boat moved forward, the net would gather into it whatever it caught. And it wasn't until they pulled that net out of the water that they then would determine, well, are there any good fish in here? If there were, they would set them aside as being of value to them. Anything else was cast out, thrown away, not good. Take this parable very, very seriously because in the church there are those who are righteous and unfortunately there are some that are not. And he alone is going to be able to determine what is good and what is bad. That's his responsibility. And he actually gives in this parable an understanding to us. He describes what this parable means. Unlike some of the other parables which he didn't explain, he explains this one. He says in verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. That's coming up soon, people. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words almost. And I believe the time is short. The age that he speaks of is an age where grace continues to abound. But that's got to come to an end. At the end of the age, this is what he's referring to. Listen closely. He says, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That should be a very, very fearsome thing for people to hear if they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, people. It's the second time in this chapter that we've actually read Jesus' words spoken here. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. What is he referring to? What kind of God would do such a thing? Our God. You know, I can't explain the concept of hell. I don't like the idea. Think about that. You know, Jesus spoke about hell more often than he spoke about heaven. And he never said anything good about hell. He didn't ever say it was a place of annihilation, by the way. He said it was a place of eternal, everlasting punishment for that which they were responsible for, either accepting or rejecting Christ. That's the only way that anybody can enter into that place that is known as hell. Rejecting Christ. Rejecting the claims of Christ. I don't want salvation by Jesus Christ. I don't want to live forever. You know, I've had a person tell me that. 
I don't want to live forever. And my response to that person was, oh, but you are going to. It's either in one place or the other, but you are an eternal soul. That's what the Bible teaches. There is no such thing as annihilation. As far as Jesus is concerned, you're going into heaven, into the presence of the Father who loves you and cares for you and has given you a free gift of salvation, or you're going elsewhere. And that elsewhere is counted as a very, very, very tormenting, difficult to live in place. But you, if you don't accept Christ, will live there nonetheless for all eternity. Everlasting. Let me reinforce that with you by having you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. They had asked him about the end times, and he gave them much to consider, much to ponder. And in verse 31, he says these things. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, now think back to what we were just reading in Matthew chapter 13, the holy angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. He says here in verse 31 again, the holy angels are with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And all the nations, all the nations, every one of them, United States, Russia, every nation, China, Haiti, every nation, Brazil, Ukraine, every nation, all nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another, just like he said about the dragnet, I'm going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous, the good from the bad, He will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now this passage is the particular passage that we refer to as the sheep and goat passage. Jesus is telling us that there are some who are sheep and they are considered to be precious in his sight. There are some who are goats and they are not. It's simple. We talked about it last time. There's good, there's bad. There's in, there's out. There's right, there's wrong. There's black, there's white. All of those contrasting statements are exactly in line with what Jesus is saying here. He will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he goes on to talk about the sheep first. He's now addressing those who have made it through the tribulation period, the seven years of trouble Jacob's trouble ended when Jesus came and set his foot upon Mount Zion and the battle of Armageddon was complete and everything had been accomplished. Satan is going to be dealt with. The Antichrist and his prophet are cast into the lake of fire and the sheep and the goats are gathered on his right and on his left. And to the sheep, he tells them, you know, you guys gave me a drink of water when I was thirsty. You fed me when I was in prison. You clothed me. You did all wonderful good things to me. And they said, what? When did we do such things? And Jesus will then point to his own Jewish people that are still alive after that terrible time of seven years of tribulation. He'll point to them and say, because when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So they enter in to the millennial kingdom of Jesus. 
to the goats. He said, you never gave me any water. You never gave me food. You never clothed me. You never visited me when I was in prison. And they asked the same kind of question. Well, when was this? What are you talking about? And Jesus will answer them, when you did not do it to the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me. So it's what they did not do as opposed to what the others did do. They're cast out into the lake of fire. For a thousand years, Satan also will be placed in that same environment. At the end of a thousand years, Satan will be released. And you know what the Bible says when Satan is released? The lake of fire is where the Antichrist and his prophet are. Present tense. Not were. For a thousand years, they've been in this place of torment. Think about it. Does that sound like annihilation to you? I don't think so. Finally, in verse 46 of that same chapter 25, it says this, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Choice. We've always talked about choice. You make a choice for God, or you make a choice against God. It's so simple to convey this truth to anyone who would ask. If there's anybody that comes to you and wants to know anything about what the Bible says, tell them this. There's eternal life. There's eternal damnation. You get to choose. Have you understood all these things Jesus asked his disciples? And they're saying, "Uh, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I got it. I'm not sure they did. In fact, I'm almost positive they did not completely understand. They might have gotten some of it. But John tells us in his gospel that they did not understand what Jesus had been teaching them all of that time that he was with them until after the resurrection. And then when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, then when they had the Spirit of God to tell them all things that they needed to know, to teach them everything they needed to be able to teach others, to guide them in all truth, then they knew. Then they had complete understanding and they told everyone that they could find all about those wonderful things that they had learned by the power of the Holy Spirit to go out into all the world as they eventually had done to tell the story. So when Jesus asked them the question, have you understood all these things? And they said, yeah, yeah, we understand. Yes, Lord. Verse 52 tells us, then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day were against him for the most part. He's not talking about those scribes that were against him. He's talking about simply the fact that there are those who are scribes who have the responsibility given to them to record the word of God faithfully. So a scribe isn't always considered to be an evil person. But in in this case, the scribe is considered to be someone who is given a responsibility. And he takes that responsibility quite seriously. He says, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder 
who brings out of his treasure things new and old. He doesn't explain that to his disciples, but I think the meaning is this. The scribe is one who is like the head of his household. The one who is the head of the household, the servant, is given a great deal of responsibility. And it is his responsibility to make sure that everything that is done in the context of that household is done according to the way the master expects it to be done. So the scribe holds a very important position. And he's telling his disciples, they are going to be like that scribe in the sense that they have been given new revelation. And they are like that scribe to take what they have been learning from Jesus and applying that to what has already been taught in the Old Testament Scriptures. The New Testament Scriptures hadn't been written yet. But in the Old Testament Scriptures, the words of God that spoke of Jesus, the words of God that showed them that the Messiah was going to come, the word of God that told them all about the fact that God was intending to let the whole world in on this wonderful news that they had been given, which they were very reluctant to share. But thankfully, the Spirit of God did indeed come as Jesus had said. And when he did come, he empowered the church to proclaim this wonderful news of salvation to the whole world. And they, like the householder, who's given responsibility to share what he has received with all of the house, he brings out of his treasure things new and old. So think of it that think of that as being a willingness on the part of the scribe, the disciple, the learner, to go out and tell others what we have found. That's still for us today. It's not just for the twelve. In fact, one of the twelve was Judas. It's for those who remain faithful to the end. It's for those who are willing to take risks on behalf of our Lord and Savior. Those who are willing to be used by God those who are true believers in the way we live our lives. It doesn't have to be by vocalizing your faith. It should be, but it doesn't have to be. You just need to live your faith. And when you live your faith, people are going to ask you, you're different. What's, what's the secret? And you can tell them, I'm one of those that have become God's treasure. I'm part of that family of God that he sacrificed his life for. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And through his affliction, a pearl is still being made. Book of Revelation, I'll end with this. Chapter 21 book of Revelation tells about a city coming down from heaven called the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem is a magnificent city described by the Apostle John in such a way as to give us a glimpse, if you will, of the glorious heaven that is in store for us one day. That city is four square, about 1,500 miles per side. 
He talks about the walls of the city being made of all kinds of precious stones. He talks about the foundations of the city. There are 12 foundations. And each one of those foundations has to do with 12 apostles. He talks about the gates of that city. 12 gates. And take note of this. Each one of the 12 gates is one solid pearl. That's you and me. In all the glory that God intends for us. Think of this. Pearl of great price. That's what you are. 